Hello and welcome to the Truth About Local Government podcast, a podcast aimed at providing a platform to promote the excellent work that the political members and officers of local authorities are doing to overcome the increasing challenges facing the communities across the UK. Additionally, we will be promoting the wider way of career opportunities that exist within local government. We hope this podcast will help drive engagement between the public and local authorities across the UK. Hello there and welcome back to a very special episode of The Truth About Local Government. Today we are joined by Elaine Atkinson, OBE, to talk about her experience as leader of Paul Council. Now, before I um, bring on our, our fantastic guest today, I'm going to talk about talk through kind of the structure of what we're going to be talking about. The first thing we're going to talk about is opportunities of partnership working in local government. And the second part will be understanding local government finance, the misconceptions the public sometimes have that council tax alone doesn't pay for services. So, Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Um, You can. You have complete control. Okay, because I think what I would, I'd like to talk about. I think partnerships are one of my conclusions as to better ways of working. Um, but I think there's there's something I'd like to start with about public perceptions. I first became a councillor nearly thirty years ago, and the perceptions of a councillor to the public have changed significantly. Now, uh, whether that's of social media or because people like to um, think badly of other people or the motivations of other people, it, it's become very political but in capital letters. So it's not about socialism or market forces or conservatives or liberal or labour. It's very much about people's expectations, what they want and expect from the council, and then how they articulate their feelings. So um, it has now become acceptable through social media to vilify and name-call and allege corruption and other horrible things of councillors. But the motivations to become a councillor are very much about wanting to make a difference. Now, if you're business-minded, it may be about better working with business. Uh, if you're um, health and well-being, then it's about better services and better working across those public sectors. But I, I'm retired now from being a councillor, but it absolutely makes me cringe when I hear allegations of other councillors um, being corrupt when there's no evidence of that, only people's perceptions on social media. And actually, recently, the leader of the new BCP council in a, a cabinet meeting called the senior management team fat cats. And that was so offensive because this is these people's careers. It's how they've earned their, their living for many years and they've developed um, their competencies and their key skills. And again, people now, they think that to call somebody a fat cat is actually okay. And that, that was the current leader of the council. Also, also councils are 
supposed supposed to be run by councillors, although the service is delivered through the officers of the council. But the ideas and the principles and the policies all come through the councillors. And I've seen a significant shift away from members um, being considered to be in that role and actually we, we had it at a national level um, where uh, MPs were accused of being bullies and since then it's opened the floodgates in local government for officers to raise issues they believe they've been bullied if they've been told what to do by a councillor and actually I've, I've seen one councillor have a complete breakdown because of a, a complaint where she thought she was just expressing her authority as a counsellor. So there's an awful lot of people's perceptions about councils that I'd just like to flag up as, as people are considering it. I think one of the things, we can go back a second to one of the things you just said there, because I, I think yeah. it's really, I've, I've talked about it before. I think social media has made it virtually impossible for local government politics to be enjoyable for um, elected members because it used to be before social media what a glorious time that was uh you know if there was an issue you'd have an in-person conversation you you know you'd agree a way forward and that would be it and that, that kind of initial confrontation although unpleasant if need be um it sometimes would, would be there and then now the fact that people are vulnerable i don't like to use the word vulnerable but basically open to constant abuse um yeah without any kind of um uh kind of uh accountability from the party leveling that criticism you, you yeah. know i think it's really really challenging so how does that make um, you know obviously you led the council for for a long time how did that make uh, elected members act in terms of, was it hard to get people to come and work in in politics and local government um, because they would see some vilification. But I got caught out very early on in my political career. Um, I went to attend a meeting with the head of service. We went down to his office. He was on the telephone. So we stood outside, my, my colleague and I, and just made general chit-chat with his secretary outside his office door. And then we went in and we had the meeting. And... A couple of days later, with our group leader, we were called up to the chief executive and told that there'd been a complaint that we'd been spying on the officers by standing outside waiting to go in to, um, in to see the head of service. Now, we got past that. I mean, that was in about 1996, 97, um, because the chief executive accepted that he had a bigger role in explaining the different roles between councillors and officers, how they may meet, how they might interact. But ever since then, I've actually advised um, new councillors, um, I'm not so new now, to actually just go to the top. The chief executive is the head of paid service. He is responsible for all of the officers who work for that council. The leader of the council is response for is responsible for all of the political input the politics parties excluded that is the role of the leader of the council and the leader and the chief executive have to have a very good relationship 
everybody down to service director is probably um, recruited and interviewed via a, a panel with elected members on it. They're member appointments. They go through the, the full council and um, sorry, there's somebody at the door. That, the, that, that goes through full council. So they are accountable to the head of, of paid service and the head of paid service is accountable to the councillors. Do you understand? Yeah, of course. And there's that interaction and kind of familiarity because of the process. So you kind of, you, you, as you begin your journey uh, as an officer, you've already met the members. So it's not a, um, it's it's not a, uh, a a new relationship. What do you think is the success then between um, uh, officers and members working together to have the best outcomes for the community? Um, my view is that they've got us. Um, Why do you think that when, is? When the leader of the council suggests that the executive management team are fat cats, that is hardly career enhancing, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, would you want to work in an organisation where the political leader thinks that you're overpaid and, and aren't delivering? It's it's certainly difficult. I mean, it, without getting drawn into the specifics of that particular issue, I mean, on a on a broader um, kind of conversation around this specific um, around kind of uh, political members and officers. So, for those people at home that you know don't know how councils run, what would be kind of the, your advice to to new councillors um, or to existing councillors as to how to have the best relationship between? Um, between those kind of two very separate but also very important um, uh, bodies of people? We usually have a programme of meeting. So you, you have elected members and officers that they're likely to deal with in one room to understand each other's roles and priorities. The chief executive as the head of paid service has to explain to the people who work for the council what the role of a councillor actually is and when their job might actually bring them into contact with um, with an, of, uh, an officer and a councillor might actually come together. Um, but I do think that councillors, if they have questions or, or queries, as long as they understand what the officers do, if they don't have any management role over officers at all, they should go to the heads of those services and let the heads delegate to get the answers that the councillors need, because that then avoids the confrontations, the feeling, feelings of officers, especially today, that they're being spied on or they might be being bullied or they're being mistreated because that's the way today's generations think. They, they think it's all confrontation. And as councillors are much older, they think they're asking a reasonable question of a person delivering that service. Um, so the chief executive has got a massive responsibility in making sure that those people in his service understand the different roles and that they come together in the team. So, for example, the housing or the adult social care with those senior officers, with the members, all the members, because 
it's not only people who are part of the committee who may have a problem with social care and that councillors tend to go to officers only when their constituent has failed to satisfy their problem um, themselves with the officers. Now that's really, really interesting. I mean, there was a, a, a meeting with a, a chap called Robert Moran, who a uh, really great guy, and he was talking because he was a former chief exec, and he said the importance of a good political member and officer relationships is critical because there will be times when it's tested and if you haven't got good working relationships then when there is an issue then it all falls apart completely um i mean sorry going going on to misconceptions from the public i mean i think this is one of the key things that i'd love to explore with you because finances of local government at the moment as you've seen it it's it's certainly not dull but it's really really tough out there um and so my question really kind of stems from why do you think the, the the majority of the public don't engage with local government and don't really, you know, and don't understand actually how the finance system works? I have a great relationship with a reporter at the local newspaper who tried to explain it. I don't know how many people read it. Um, the problem is... And we are all the same. We think the only thing that we get from the local authority is our bin emptied. And over the years, that's become very dramatic because most places now it's only once a fortnight. The size of the bin has reduced. Big families have got too much waste. They have to separate their own recycling. That's only collected once a fortnight. And if you stop a man in the street and say, what did you get from your local authority? That will be it. So seeing a cut in the service, which is the one visible thing that he sees. Now, if somebody has children, um, then education becomes something that they get from the local authority, but they're not satisfied with that because accessing um, assessments for special needs and what have you have got more and more difficult. And somebody who's got a parent who's become frail and they're struggling to find the right care or get care through the local authority, then they recognise that social care comes through the uh, local authority and they're not good at that either. So basically, the front-facing things that people see are what directly affects them. And the dissatisfaction comes because they have a perception of what that service should look like. And when they get a service, it doesn't meet that perception. So I when, when I was a, a portfolio holder before I became the leader, I had a very special focus on health and social care. And in Dorset, we have the highest percentage of people over 85 anywhere in the country. The councils were the lowest funded councils under the old funding schemes. And we were struggling to recruit people into the health and social care sector. Now, that was a dozen years ago. Where we were saying we were that at that time is where the rest of the country are now. I've, I have a friend who's recently been assessed as um, qualifying for some social care, um, somebody to come into their home and help them. But that's been with the brokerage service at the local social services for a month now, and they haven't been able to find a service to meet that resident's needs because people 
don't value care unless we're using it. I think it's too expensive. And um, why would you want to go and work in a sector where the perception is, is all you do is get to wipe people's bottoms? So it's, it's interesting, what, that, isn't it? The branding. I mean, because I saw an interesting piece around this. It was ages ago now, probably a year. But around care, like in America, like care is like a career. Whereas it's it's there's not necessarily always that perception from the public that the that carer is, is a phenomenal in a role to go into. Um but it's not paid that well compared to other positions. And so they have quite a high attrition rate. And that's really difficult as well for for elderly residents who like to have the continuity of person that is kind of interacting with them in their own homes. But going back a second, because I think there's something really you've you've hit a really, really interesting nail on the uh, you know in this conversation. Perception and expectation. Do you think it is possible for the expectations that the public has across with all the different variety of, of society and all the different kind of expectations can be met with the current funding that they the local government receives. Forever, really, for many, many years. I mean, one example is, like I said, in Poole, we were the third lowest funded unitary authority in the country. We had that massive number of um, people aged over 85 who were going to be in need of, of care. Um, I lobbied government monthly. I went up and me and Brandon Lewis became firm friends uh, when he was doing some of the Secretary of State's work. Um, but there isn't enough money because people don't realise that the only money a government has is what it collects in taxes or what it borrows. And what it borrows, it has to pay back. And we all want low taxation. We all think that we're overtaxed. When people talk about um, social care in Sweden, it's absolutely wonderful. Apparently, it hasn't been there. Um, but their taxes are far higher than ours. So there's a conundrum there between low taxes and better services. Um, but as I said earlier, most people's perception is that the only thing they get is their bin empty. And that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to really shine a light on the variety of service lines that local government does, because it is, I believe sincerely, a council run properly with members and officers has an amazing impact on all members of the community. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. There's very few things that are like that within society as, as a whole in terms of organisations. Um, and I think that's what, you know, kind of striving towards is people like yourself who have worked so hard and tirelessly. And I really appreciate everything that they do alongside the officers. Is there anything that you'd like to see change in terms of what, what do you think would, would make kind of a powerful change to the, the situation at the moment? constantly um, strive to have those conversations um, but one of the difficulties is, is is that the government are trying to save money and local authorities are wanting more so there needs to be a restructure of public sector financing um, because it's made a shift from the majority of the money that the council had was um, was paid to it on an annual basis uh, based on 
ridiculous things like the number of miles of motorway in a council area and, and such like, not the number of older people. So it needs to be reviewed. It is all paid for by the taxpayer, whichever tax it comes from. Um, councils are increasing council tax now, but for all the years that I was the, the leader, all the way through the from 2010 onwards, we had council tax freezes. The government wanted us to freeze council tax, so we weren't increasing that local tax take to uh, keep up to provide the services that we needed to. And much more money shifted from the local government settlement to being held by government for councils to prepare bids for various schemes and put those forward. And then the short-term funding to do that paid for it, but it wasn't sustainable. So, for example, uh, one partnership that we had here in Poole uh, was with the other local councils uh, with the NHS, with the further education establishments, the college and the um, university. And we put together a programme of how to better integrate health and social care. We looked at workforce and skills and, and we all worked together. I did some really good study trips with the college and the university to look at other European countries. And we came up with some great ideas and we delivered some services that we couldn't have done on our own. But then after three years, there was no more money for that. It had been a three-year project and it just all, it didn't completely fall apart. Some of the things that we introduced did work. Um, but then as money gets tighter, people are looking more at what their core funding can provide. So that's the big issue that the historically central government have funded local government and they've local government have made up the gaps with uh, council tax. All of that has changed completely. Now uh, they they're trying to trade, they're trying to charge for some of their services. And the rules around councils training, trading are very strict. They can only do it by uh, via a, um, a company. They have to set up a company for which they are the shareholder and they provide services through that vehicle. Um, now, in Pool, in the early 2000s, we set up such a vehicle uh, to manage the council's housing stock and the management and maintenance of that stock. And that worked really, really well. It was an arm's length company. The council was the only shareholder. It, forgive me for saying this, it was only council housing. So most people couldn't be bothered to know anything about it. And it worked for over 20 years. Now, more recently, in the new council, the leaders set up another arm's length company called Future Places, which was looking at building and developing and creating partnerships with others. Same kind of vehicle, same thing, but because it was in the public eye, because there was profit involved, then that was uh, considered by a lot of the public or social media as being scurrilous and probably corrupt. It wasn't managed the housing stock that way, but because it involved money and profit, people didn't like it. So 
we're back to people's perceptions, social media. One of the meetings I had with Brandon Lewis, he told me to sweat our assets. Go away, sweat your assets. Yet when the council, the BCP, tried to, if you like, mortgage the beach huts last year, somebody from government jumped in and said, no, well, you can't do that. Yeah, it, it does. It does feel that central government. I mean, I, I don't always like to be like a a punch and Judy sketch where local's good and central's bad because there are things that central government do that are good. But most of the time, it feels that from a particularly from a finance perspective, local government have got the hand side behind the back trying to catch a ball. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so difficult because you know in 2010 and everyone listening at home, the reason why councils had to go out there and start you know making commercial investments that are used, as you'll have seen yeah. me discuss in other episodes, is because they were told by central government we're going to cut your funding. Um, yeah. And so, therefore, you need to sweat your assets, as Elaine said, and yeah. you need to go and find other revenue streams. And and that led to its own problems because there wasn't necessarily the support or the training to go and do that properly. So I completely agree with you on that. I mean, just coming back to now, because you, you talked at the start of this episode about partnerships and that that conversation with the NHS yeah. and with you know and and kind of particularly around care, that kind of integrated care model. Um, how how important are partnerships? Do you think in the future of local government? I think partnerships are incredibly important, but the politicians locally and, the, again, the, the leadership of the councils have to accept and acknowledge that. I think in um, in some way, government are pulling away from uh, partnerships. So, for example, um, local enterprise partnerships were set up in about 2010 and they were... Uh, were not government funded and they were a panel of local business people, the leaders of the, the three councils as it was in those days um, and other significant figures came together to look at how to develop services and how to move them forward but from more of a business perspective. I was really lucky because they accepted onto their programme um, workforce and skills across health and social care as a key priority, which is why we know the, the figures about our elderly population and the projections for it and, and everything else. But actually researching some things before this interview, I see the government have decided to scrap LEPs from next April mm -hmm. and give the money back to local government. Now, it won't be all the money. And also, I love local government, you know, and the long service in it, but they don't do everything best. People don't go to university to qualify as um, as, as business-minded people, entrepreneurs and everything, and then go and work for a council. It's not in there. They go somewhere else. So the, the LEP, I thought, was a fantastic vehicle, but that's going. So if government are scrapping partnerships, why why would local councils want to revive them? Um, the partnership we had with the college, the university, the hospitals, the um, oh, PCT or whatever it, it was in that at that time really brought us together. At, at the highest levels to make a difference and that the um, local hospital offered to their training services to do joint training with people but then when I left the lab then nobody else wanted to pick up that work um, which was such a shame because I was working 
with the LGA as well and with the, the, the sector partners, that partnership was really working and it was actually providing something a bit different. Um, and it felt better. We had voices of older people telling us what they wanted rather than uh, councillors and officers deciding what they thought people needed. So near to where I live, there, there's a hill between the village and the, the, the local area with shops. The, the older people asked for a bench to be put halfway up the hill. Nobody had ever thought of that. What difference would that make? It made such a difference to them. So it's partnerships not only with um, businesses, with other public sector organisations, but with the clients. I mean, I think we called that POPs, the Partnership for Older People Services, where we listen to the voices of old people. So I think partnerships are key. I think all the public sector is funded from the government. We've recently had the merger of the uh, main hospital in Bournemouth and in Poole, so that's cut down now to one chief executive. The three councils... Um, but Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole, Christchurch used to be part of Dorset, have come together. My views on that is it was a vanity project that was rushed through and the council are struggling with that. Um, but those partnerships are key to getting things done. And if you ask people, consultation isn't yes or no. Consultation is much wider than that. And if you invite people or businesses, partners, to come to the table and look at what you can do best, where the duplication of the pound is across the NHS or the local authority, you can really make a difference. No, I completely agree. And just going back to the point you made before about entrepreneurial spirit within local government, I think one of the key things as well that I see a huge amount of entrepreneurial spirit within within the many different parts of different councils. And I think that comes down to now that you know, we've got to encourage and it's about giving a branding and awareness of the amazing opportunities and the variety of opportunities that exist in local government, because there is such an amazing career to be had across so many different. I mean, you talk about what you've achieved in, in adults and social and healthcare. It's amazing. Um, and I completely agree. And I think, you know, you've um, again, people like yourself who've, who've served so long are just are just such integral parts of, of society. You really are, because you need those people who put themselves out there and yes they they and and, and they're criticized by by some sections but without that you know that that kind of glue that holds society together can be can kind of uh, can be eroded away so uh, absolutely uh, i just want to uh, elaine i'm I've, i actually i've had such a lovely time talking to you today and i really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us we've had for those at home we, we've had some it issues so uh, i hope the quality has been good and i hope you enjoyed uh, having elaine atkinson obe talking to us about her experience of local government elaine thank you so much for coming on the podcast Elaine, I will. Thank you so much. For those listening at home, you've been listening to the truth about local government. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. You have been listening to the truth about local government podcast. Remember, your local council does some amazing work, but you can help. So remember to vote and be engaged with the work they're doing. If you like this podcast, please like, share and give a five star review. If you would like to feature on the podcast, have any shout out of excellent work being done by a local authority or have any topics you would like covered, please email me 
at truthaboutlocalgovernment at gmail.com. Truth about local government. Local government is at the heart of what we do.